Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. For taking the time, we appreciate it. How much of your time can we steal from you today, just out of curiosity, so we don't <laughs> keep it too long? As well, we can go an hour or whatever we need to do. Perfect. All right. Awesome. Well, we are up and rolling right now. Um, you know, for people that aren't familiar with you, Dr. Williams, um, can you tell us a little bit about your background? I know we're getting some interesting stuff on agricultural stuff, but uh, I want to just, for, for those that have not heard you before, I've been aware of you for a while now, but uh, and it's a true pleasure to, to to get to chat with you. So we're looking forward to this, and uh, hopefully we can hopefully continue this, advance this message. But go ahead and maybe you can give yourself a little bit of an introduction for the for the listeners that aren't familiar with your work. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, just very briefly on background, um, I'm a sixth generation uh, family farmer. My family has been on their farm in South Carolina since 1840. So I was born and raised there. Uh, ended up inadvertently, one of those things in life that never say never, uh, but ended up inadvertently uh, in academia. I had fully intended to go away to college and come back home after getting my bachelor's degree and uh, spend the rest of my life on the family farm, like most of the prior generations had. Uh, but I got talked into going into graduate school. Uh, I went to college at Clemson and, and then at LSU. So I got my bachelor's and master's at Clemson University, then a PhD at LSU. So I guess that makes me a double tiger. Um, you know, last, the, this past February or January, I guess, with the national championship game, that made it rough on me to have to pick and choose who to pull for. But uh, So I couldn't win and I couldn't lose, right? But uh, so ended up doing 15 years in academia. I was a, a research scientist and a, and a teaching professor. Uh, and in the year 2000, I left academia, went back into business full time. Uh, and at that time, we went back into farming and ranching. Uh, and, and that academic appointment or the last one was at Mississippi State University in Starkville, Mississippi. So uh, so we still live here. We've been here for more than 25 years now, and we farm and ranch in Mississippi and Alabama. Uh, we also have a, a pastured protein company. So we market pastured proteins, grass-fed beef, uh, pastured lamb, pork, eggs, broilers, all of those types of things to restaurants and then direct to consumer. Uh, and we also have, with, uh, with another set of partners, uh, we have a consulting company called Understanding Ag, and we have a nonprofit attached to that called the Soil Health Academy that is an educational arm. So 
we work with farmers and ranchers all over North America and in many other countries around the world through Understanding Ag to help them be able to, first of all, educate themselves on regenerative agricultural principles and then how to apply them to their specific farm, their specific ranch. Uh, and the Soil Health Academies, that educational arm, is designed specifically to teach multi-day intensive hands-on schools to farmers and ranchers and others in regenerative agriculture principles and practices. Uh, and so in doing all of that, we obviously work with, I like to tell people we work with the complete microbiome. Everything, the microbiome in the soil, to the plants, to the animals, to us. So we work with it all and, and we work very hard to link human health from the soil all the way through to our bodies and, and what happens to us over a lifetime of the way that we eat and manage ourselves. So that's sort of a quick and dirty. You know, we've had on a number of folks sort of in that similar realm. We had Alan Savory on, Bobby Gill from the Savory Institute. We've had Joel Salatin. We've had Will Harris. We've had on Glenn Elsinga at Alder Spring Ranch. All these great guys are doing this. We see this over and over again. And, you know, one of the one of the questions we often have is, you know, how do we know, how can we prove, because obviously you're, you're a proponent of regenerative style agriculture. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, it seems, you know, it, it's just this wonderful thing. What, but the people say, well, there's no studies that, that will prove that it actually does what we claim it does. You know, there's very, there's, there's, you know, I think White Oaks Pastures, they did a study recently, which, you know, or, or, uh, uh, I can't remember who paid for it, but they got some funding for it, but it's tough to find it. So what evidence out there outside of, you know, anecdotes that, you know, you know, that, that show that you know, we're doing some good things. What, what kind of studies are out there currently? Are we, see, are we seeing more and more studies showing the benefits uh, to soil and uh, biodiversity coming up? Yep. So yes, the, the studies are, starting to grow. Uh, you know, there's work by Dr. Richard Teague. Uh, he's a good friend of mine at Texas A&M University. Richard has published a number of studies, him and fellow colleagues, that show a lot of the benefits in terms of the, on the livestock side, particularly the grazing, what we call adaptive regenerative grazing uh, we also are heavily involved in a North American-wide research project right now called the Soil Carbon Project. And I'm, I'm one of the scientists that's on that team. But we have a, a consortium of scientists, not just from North America, but all over the world, with many different areas of, of expertise from the soil up that are, what we're doing is we're looking at what we call paired comparisons. So we are comparing neighboring farms and ranches across in different regions of North America, eco, ecosystem regions. And what we're doing is we're measuring everything from soil health parameters in the soil to plant species diversity, insect and pollinator, populations and diversity, bird populations, other wildlife. We're looking at livestock performance in these operations. And we are 
actually carrying that through measurements of nutritive density in in food products and those types of things. So, so we have that ongoing. Uh, we'll actually have uh, our first series of peer-reviewed articles coming out either later this year or early next year. And it, it's an ongoing project. It is a multi-million dollar project. And there are a number of foundations and companies who, who are helping to fund this work because they do have extreme interest in not only in the carbon aspect, but, but the regenerative aspect as well. And, and that human nutrition link between the soil and, and human health. So we do have quite a bit of research that's ongoing right now. You're correct about the study that was funded uh, that involved Will Harris and White Oak Pastures. Uh, and we have quite a bit of data already that is showing the significant benefits. And of course, because we're doing this, and as a scientist, things that may be called anecdotal, when you have large numbers across many different types of environments and many different ecosystems where the same principles are working regardless of the soil type, the rainfall, the heat, the cold, whatever, and they're working equally well across all of those many environments and then across multiple countries, that all of a sudden becomes much more than anecdotal. You know, we, we witness this every day my partners and I witness it on our own farms, and we witness it on thousands of client farms in the U.S. and, and abroad. So what we're seeing is rather staggering, and I, I'll have to admit to you, we have done this. Uh, for instance, I've been involved in this 25-plus years. One of my partners, Gabe Brown, 30-plus years and we're working with people that have been involved for you know three decades or so. And we continue to make new discoveries, discoveries that even yet today, after all of these years doing regenerative practices, still absolutely amaze us. When you say staggering and use words like amazing, I mean, those are pretty, yep. pretty big words. And yep. so I want to dig into that. What do you mean by that? And, and remember, most of this people are that tune into this are not farmers or ranchers or people that are interested in health and fitness. Uh, so how do you put that into terms that would make make you say staggering? I mean, what, why is it staggering? Uh, a number of things. First of all, let, let's start with the soil first. We have so farmed out our soils, so degraded our soils, and so damaged the biology in the soil that we cannot aggregate those soil particles so that it acts like a sponge and absorbs the rainfall. And so therefore, even with just minor amounts of rainfall now, it ponds and pools on top of the soil surface and then runs off and then carries nitrates and phosphates and topsoil and all that with it. So that's one of the primary things that we're seeing. We need to restore the soil biology. And that means, you know, the, the hundreds of thousands of bacterial species, the 100,000 plus mycorrhizal fungi species and so forth. Now, 
here's what happens. Here's what's so staggering about this. And we have quite a bit of data to back up what I'm saying. And I am quoting some of our data as I'm going to speak here. Uh, on many farms within a period of two to four years, we have seen soil water infiltration rates when we implement regenerative agriculture practices go from less than a half inch an hour to 10 to 20 inches an hour in just two to four years of regenerative agriculture practices. So we've seen this over and over and that again is a direct result of rapidly building soil biology. And those microbes in the soil produce biotic glues, these glues that glue together the soil, the tiny soil particles to make them much larger. So that again, now the soil, instead of becoming impervious to rainfall like concrete, it now has all of these pores and channels and air spaces. So it can act like that sponge and infiltrate the soil. So that's one of the things that we're seeing. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Carnivore Snacks. Carnivore Snacks is a startup company with a focus on providing convenience without compromise. With just two ingredients, meat and salt, Carnivore Snacks is bringing a wholesome snack to your pantry or travel bag. They created the company in order to bring awareness around regenerative agriculture by picking white oak pastures as their primary supplier. The texture of Carnivore Snacks is described as airy, crispy, crunchy, mimicking a chip. So if you want to say yes to sustainable meat, head over to Kickstarter and search Carnivore Snacks, that's snacks with an X, or head over to Instagram and search carnivore.snacks. Be sure to check out their ribeye, eye of round, and pork loin options. If you'd like to hear more about the owner-creator of Carnivore Snacks, check out episode 95 of Human Performance Outliers, where we sat down with Sylvia Tavor and explored her health and nutrition journey. Links for all of this can be found in the show notes. Now, back to the show. Yeah, Alan, let me just, before you jump on to the next point, I mean, that has uh, implications in things like uh, fires and stuff like that, because we see these, you know, wildfires that, that, that are occurring because of, you know, yes. too much, not enough moisture in the, in the, in the area. So that, that I hope mitig that potentially could mitigate some of that. If that if, am I, is that not correct? Hugely. Uh, as a matter of fact, think of soil aggregation like you would insulation in a home or in a building. Insulation works both in the summer and the winter. So does soil aggregation relative to whether it's too wet or too dry. So, Highly aggregated soil will significantly reduce flooding events and highly aggregated soil will significantly reduce drought events, hence your fires, those types of things. So, you know, we know that over the last several years, we have had an ever increasing amount of significant and severe flooding and drought and of course a lot of this drought conditions have led to the major fires like the, the fire two years ago uh, that destroyed the the town of paradise california uh, it was called the camp fire you know and, and there's been many many other instances like that so yes this helps to mitigate both flooding and drought and therefore fire events yeah, Alan, I wanted to ask you a few questions about kind of the soil, because I think with some of our previous uh, 
interviews, we focus a little more on kind of the animal ag side of things. But like one thing that I find interesting is like when you look at some of these like multi-paddock regenerative agriculture studies, one thing they'll usually say is like that soil becomes more, more like able to absorb some of that carbon as well as you get that kind of, especially if it's like a grassland, you get those deep grass roots that penetrate way further down. And one of the kind of like counters, I guess, to that was when we look at some of the carbon sequestration early on, it shows like this huge promise for a carbon sink. And the counter, I guess, is that over time, that amount kind of dwindles as I guess the soil becomes more like saturate, saturated with the, with the carbon. Is, there, is that just something that is not really the big advantage of that and it's more so this ability to kind of keep that water where it's where it falls as opposed to running off and then having these large swaths of desertification and then you know massive pools of water where it eventually ends up no there are significant benefits in terms of greenhouse gas emissions as well and and carbon storage so what we are seeing is that we can not only initially sequester a lot more carbon, but we can maintain that performance. And that is exactly what we're finding. Uh, one of the things that we're doing on this, uh, that this paired study that I mentioned earlier, the soil carbon project, is we have flux towers out on these farms. And these flux towers are measuring greenhouse gas emissions, not just carbon, but also nitrous oxide and methane and and others on a 24-7 basis. So we are seeing exactly what is happening on these regenerative operations compared to conventional operations relative to those emissions. And, and I can tell you that once these studies are published, that flux tower data is going to be very meaningful. Uh, we, you know, we, we have been watching this come in over and over. And it's so, it's so telling that we can actually, without even being there and just watching the flux tower data, know exactly what's going on. We can tell when animals are moved into a field, when they're moved out, when grazing events occurred, when they're over, all of that, because the flux data is, is actually that, that telling. Now, the other thing, though, that we have to remember and that many, many do not understand when we talk about the carbon issue is that actually the vast majority of carbon is not meant to just be sucked, sucked out of the air and socked away into the ground forever. Okay? Uh, the vast majority is meant to be a part of what we call the liquid carbon pathway and it's meant to be continually cycled. Our problem that we have right now is not that we're just simply releasing too much carbon. Our problem is that we are not cycling this carbon like we need to through that liquid carbon pathway. And that liquid carbon is the food source for these microbes. It fuels the microbes in the body, just like an athlete has to have good food to fuel their body for performance. These microbes are the same way. They have to have good food to fuel their performance. And this liquid carbon pathway performs that function. 
Dr. Bones, we and we've talked about you know what regenerative agricultural means, how it's done, adaptive you know adaptive multipedic grazing, you know the, the the movement and stuff like that. And I want to I want to get into two things. One is the question of scalability. I know you've addressed that because that is a that is obviously the naysayers will say it's not scalable, um, it's not financially viable. Um, you'll never produce that amount of uh, you know beef or meat that you you could do compared to. Uh, commercial, you know, CAFO feedlots and stuff like that. So what do you say to those sort of criticisms? What is the true scalability of this sort of style of agriculture? Okay, well, I, I can tell you exactly what we're doing and, uh, and, and then also what is possible. So first of all, let's address the cost, okay? Because that's one of the primary barriers that is immediately thrown up. Okay, th this is gonna cost way too much, right? and how can farmers afford to make this transition? When in reality, this is not a huge cost. And as a matter of fact, what we see is that many farmers and ranchers, when they make the transition into regenerative agriculture, even in their very first year, realize significant input cost reduction and additional net margins. And certainly by year two and year three, uh, they are seeing far better profitability in terms of net profitability. And then that continues to grow on an incremental basis. So I'll, I'll give you a couple examples here. We have, uh, in, we've, we're doing a, quite a few case studies right now, and these will be available uh, for people uh, to be able to view and all of that. So we will be sharing case studies on our websites. But uh, one of the case studies involves a, a farm that's a 10th generation farm in Eastern North Carolina, the coastal plains of North Carolina. In just their second year, it's a 1200 acre farm. In just their second year of regenerative agriculture, they reduced their input costs by $200,000. So they saved $200,000. And what's more meaningful about that is that year, Hurricane Florence hit them. And their farm got flooded in September of that year with eight to nine feet of floodwaters. In spite of those floodwaters, and, and this is what's so even more impactful about this, in spite of that severe and significant event that basically, you know, significantly damaged all the neighboring farms to this farm for the rest of that year, for the rest of 2018, this particular farm still realized a $200,000 reduction in input cost. In year three, they were able to pay off all of their farm debt. Now that's a major, major issue with many farmers in the US. We're seeing record numbers of farm bankruptcies because of farm debt, and even record numbers of, unfortunately, farmer suicide because of this burdensome debt load. They were able to pay off all of their farm debt by just year three of regenerative agriculture practices and purchase a new farm paying all cash. Now that's some substantial economic benefits and we're seeing that repeated over and over. Uh, so, so our case studies are gonna provide many different examples of that. But if we talk about the, the other aspects and ramifications of it, from a scale standpoint. Actually, what we're finding 
over the last several decades, and again, when I gave you my introduction, I told you I'm a sixth generation family farmer. So I've been in farming and ranching my entire life. Uh, and I was born in 1960. Okay, so, uh, so just to let you know, you know, now I'm six decades in, I guess, right? So been in farming and ranching my entire life, and I've seen many different cycles occurring here. And one of the things that has happened is that over the last several decades, the vast majority of farms and ranches have become more and more specialized. And what I mean by that is that on any given acre, they have come to believe that they can only produce one crop or grow one type of animal, one revenue stream per acre per year, right? So that's either corn or soybeans or wheat or cattle or chickens, whatever the case may be. And that's all I can do on that acre. Well, we're finding out that that's very wrong. We call it multi-enterprise or stacked enterprise systems. And that's what we're now doing on our own farms and many, many of our clients are doing. And, and what I mean by that is that on any given acre on our farms, we can generate between five and more than 10 revenue streams per acre every year. So I'll give you an example. I could grow, say, a corn crop or a soybean crop on that acre, but I could interseed a multi-species cover crop. After I harvest that cash crop, that corn or those soybeans, I can then run multiple species of livestock through there to graze that cover crop in the fall and winter and spring. And I could, I could run cattle, sheep, goats, hogs and chickens, all of those through there. So now I've run five or more different species of livestock generating income off of that cover crop while I also harvested a cash crop. Now what that is doing is that is greatly magnifying the amount of food produced for every acre. And that's a very, very different model than the model that we evolved into of this monoculture and specialized agriculture over the last several decades. So that's one thing. But the second thing is in terms of scalability, and I'll specifically talk about, since you brought it up, you know, the feedlots and, and you know, the CAFO production system for uh, livestock. But what we have done is, uh, and I've actually got several articles out on this, be happy to share those as well, and they're archived. But we went throughout the U.S., and we looked at available, non-utilized grassland. And not even talking about public lands, okay? But just privately owned, privately deeded, non- and underutilized grasslands. And virtually every state in the U.S. right now has a minimum of one million or more acres of non-utilized grassland. So when we ran our calculations, we found out that right now today, if we were to switch our production systems from feedlot finishing of cattle to grass finishing of cattle, right now today, we could grass finish, if we wanted to, more than 50 million head of cattle on grass. Now let's compare that to how many are finished in the feedlot today. Right now today, 
on a year-in, year-out basis, we're finishing 29 to 30 million head in the feedlot. So if we somehow today just said, okay, all feedlots disappear, we would have no problem with finishing the amount of cattle that we need to meet the beef demand. Alan, is one of the biggest selling points right now kind of for to the farmer specifically, like I'm trying to imagine if I were running a kind of current conventional farm and, you know, it was proposed to me to switch over to a more regenerative process. Is it more intriguing to the farmer knowing that they're probably a little more diversified if they have like, say, like you've mentioned 10 different revenue streams coming off of that acre versus just one crop where if a drought would come, you could be, you know, under in a year. Yes, that is definitely intriguing. Yeah, because most farmers, let, let's face it, uh, they've become so specialized that they're only growing one or two or maybe at best three commodities annually off their farms. And if those commodity prices are not good, they're in serious trouble. This way, it greatly reduces the chances that you're going to have a significant economic hit because now you're producing these multiple revenue streams off of multiple enterprises on every acre. And if price for one product happens to be down that year, you know, it, it's going to be an incredibly rare year where prices for multiple products are going to be down in the same year. So now you have opportunity to greatly reduce that financial stress and to make a profit off of every acre every single year. And let me give you an example here just to further illustrate that. Most people don't realize that the average corn and soybean farmer in the U.S. is basically all they grow, okay? They, if you're a corn and soybean farmer, you grow those in rotation and it's pretty rare. You may occasionally plant a wheat crop or something like that, but most of the farmers throughout the Midwest that are corn and bean farmers, that's what they're producing. And many of them are not even planting their own gardens, okay? So they're producing commodity corn, commodity beans. And we know that it's easy to overproduce those and to significantly impact the value of that crop. Every one of those farmers could be adding at least two to three to four or more revenue generating enterprises to all of those acres and not have to go through the year in, year out economic hits that they take. In 2018 and 2019, when you look at the USDA ERS data, that's uh, the agricultural data source for both yields, agricultural commodity yields, and the value of those and what the farmers actually made in terms of net profit. So when you look at that USDA ERS data, in 2018 and 2019, without the government subsidy programs, the average corn farmer in the U.S. lost between 30 and $60 an acre. It didn't make any money. Okay. Uh, and this, in a good year for many of these corn and bean farmers is where they may clear 25 to $30 an acre net margin. 
our farmers are clearing several thousand dollars per acre net margins. So an individual farmer doesn't have to have near as many acres anymore. As a matter of fact, what we have seen is this anomaly where many of these farmers that are transitioning to regenerative have actually reduced the number of acres that they're leasing and, and farming because they no longer need to farm such large acres to make any money. They can now farm far fewer acres, make a lot more net profit and support their family. And oh, by the way, they have more time to devote since now they're farming fewer acres. They have more time to devote to regenerative practices on each and every acre. Alan, as a consumer of food, I certainly appreciate what the farmers and ranchers do to supply me with my food, and I think they're underappreciated. But I guess not sort of discounting the fact that they can make more profit, but I, I come back to this, you know, you made this comparison of, you know, if we were to utilize all the underutilized grasslands, we could, we could finish out 50 million head of cattle compared to the roughly 29, 30 million we do. So that's a 66% increase in, in, our, in our production capacity just on cattle. But if they were to multi-species graze on top of that, we would see even greater productivity yields uh, even beyond that. So we, we have the capacity uh, to greatly increase the amount of food we, we produce, both animal and plant agriculture, by doing this type of uh, uh, system there, which I think is, is, is you know, very, very uh, interesting. Are there any, uh, because there's, you know, in the U.S. and others, about, there's approximately 750,000 cattle ranches. Most of them are, you know, small, you know, 40, 50 head, you know, family-run things. Um, is this sort of thing appropriate for all of them? Are there any regions, you know, some people point to like the desert Southwest, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, some parts of Texas where it's hot and dry, where this is not appropriate. And they'll point to people like, you know, with, uh, with uh, um, Joel Salatin in the Shenandoah Valley, where he's got this pristine grasslands, beautiful rainfall. What do you say to those people that say you can't do it everywhere? And I've, cause I've talked to Sarah Place from NCBA and I've talked to some of the people that say, well, it maybe it's not appropriate in certain parts of the parts of the country or world, and perhaps. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't have to give you my thoughts. I can give you what is actually occurring in terms of data, results, personal witness, and case studies. So what I can tell you very conclusively is that that is absolutely incorrect. Uh, in terms of when people say, well, this doesn't work everywhere and in every environment. No, it does. We have the case studies, we have the data, we have the results to, to prove and back that up. So, so you mentioned the desert, the desert Southwest. Let, let's go there. So we have numerous ranches in the desert Southwest that we are working with. Uh, and many of these are rather large, anywhere from 20,000 acres to over a million acres. So there's your scale. Okay, uh, so we're actually working with ranches that are that are operating on up to a million acres, okay, on their ranch, and and I'm talking about a million contiguous acres, okay, so that so that's a very very large ranch in today's standards. Uh, what we are finding is that we can actually restore grasslands and high levels of productivity to the desert without irrigation, without added fertilizer and those types of things. Just simply using the tools of livestock, 
portable or temporary fencing and water, we can restore the desert. Uh, we have multiple case studies where we have done just that in states like New Mexico, Nevada, the state of Chihuahua in Mexico, the state of Coahuila in Mexico, and in West Texas. So there are multiple examples of this, and those examples are growing every day because we have more and more that, it, that have been contacting us wanting to implement these things. And, and again, the results are, are, are pretty, pretty phenomenal. Uh, I, I can share with you, for instance, the Los Damas Ranch in the state of Chihuahua in Mexico. They get less than eight inches of rain annually. Uh, for the typical rancher in Chihuahua, it takes 200 to 300 acres to support a single cow. The Los Damas Ranch, and, and they're just one of a number, but the Los Damas Ranch in just 10 years has gone from requiring more than 200 acres to support a single cow and her calf to 30 acres to support that same cow and calf. It has turned from basically what you would picture that desert, that Southwest desert looking like, a lot of bare soil, to a vibrant grassland with no irrigation, no seeding. We use the latent seed bank, the seed that has existed in that soil for centuries. We use the latent seed bank, no irrigation, temporary fencing, strategic placement of water, and daily movement of cattle. And that's what worked to restore that. So we're doing that everywhere in the US, in Canada, Mexico, South America, Australia, you name it, this Africa, this is working. Uh, so these principles and practices work no matter the climate, no matter the environment, no matter the scale, okay? And on the very large ranches, you know, I've talked a lot about temporary fencing. Uh, the Las Damas is a 30,000 acre plus ranch, so it, it's not small. Uh, it's not the half million to million acre ranch, but, uh, but we're working on those as well, like I said. And we're using a combination of temporary polywire fencing and herding. So we can take cowboys and cowgirls on horseback. Uh, or in the case of Mexico, we'd call them vaqueros, right? And in Nevada, we call them buckaroos. So they're called different things, different places. But uh, we can take these cowboys and cowgirls on horseback, and they can herd the cattle, the sheep, the goats, whatever the livestock species may be, in a manner that allows for regenerative grazing. So we don't, when we get into more rugged terrain, we can achieve the exact same results using herding, intentional herding, as we can using temporary electric fencing. Hey folks, I have some exciting news to share. HPO Podcast wants to reward some of our regular listeners and supporters. So we have partnered up with some companies to offer a monthly raffle for all our Patreon and PayPal donors. It's simple, donate as little as one US dollar per month to automatically enter. For every dollar you donate, we'll qualify you for a raffle ticket. At the end of the month, the raffle will be drawn and winners announced. Ultra Footwear is going to be giving away a free pair of shoes for our US listeners. Ultra Footwear makes shoes that are shaped like feet 
have balanced cushioning and build their shoes specifically to the anatomy of male and female feet. They call it their fit for her system. So check them out at ultrarunning.com. That's ultra with an A, running.com. S Fuels provides a series of low carb, high fat endurance and lifestyle products that are designed with the help from World Ironman Age Group Champion, Dr. Dan Plews, six time Hawaii Ironman triathlete, Dave Scott, and now myself. You can check out some of their educational material at sfuelsgolonger.com and also my collaboration with sfuels at sfuelsgolonger.com forward slash Zach. Sean and Zach will also be raffling off a free 20 minute consult each with minimum two weeks notice. So head over to paypal.me forward slash HPOpod or patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast to support the show. Hey, uh, Dr. Williams, I wanted to just put this into perspective because a lot of people are focused on uh, methane production, climate change. Uh, what, you know, and I know we've got this study that Will Harris did. What is the net effect of regenerative agriculture on net carbon flux, you know, equivalent carbon when we can account for methane because, you know, some people say, well, you know, the animals will actually belch more methane when they're eating forage as opposed to grain. Uh, and so what is the overall impact if we can do this regenerative agriculture? Can we put numbers in perspective? If we, let's say we convert 100% of our, our, our cattle to uh, regenerative style, what would that impact look like on, you know, greenhouse gas production? Okay, so to answer that question, what I'm going to say is we're going to start from what we call a historical ecological perspective. So you've got to understand how the way this world has worked for millennia. We have always had hundreds of millions of wild ruminants roaming this earth on virtually every continent, you know, with, with the exception of Antarctica. So we, we've had these hundreds of millions of wild ruminants roaming this earth for many, many thousands of years. And in North America, certainly no exception. You know, in North America, we had the bison, we have caribou, we have many species of deer, elk, antelope, and so forth. And originally, the vast majority of these species, including the bison and the elk, and here's what a lot of a lot of consumers do not know today is that hundreds of years ago and a thousand plus years ago, bison existed from the Atlantic to the Pacific and from south of the Arctic Circle all the way down to the Gulf Coast. So did antelope, so did elk. And we had multiple subspecies of each of those species. Now we wiped out most of them. You know, uh, it almost wiped out the very last species of bison, which are called the bison, bison, bison. And that's the plains bison that we know today. But we used to have what were called savanna bison, woodland bison, southern bison, and so forth. Uh, and again, the same with elk. So the first question that I always ask people, every ruminant, whether it's a bison, a deer, an elk, a caribou, a, an elephant, a wildebeest, cape buffalo, doesn't matter, you name it. Every ruminant, wild or domestic, belches methane. 
every one of them. It's not something that's unique to a cow or a, or a sheep, a domesticated rumen. Okay, so that means that for millennia, we've had hundreds of millions of wild ruminants belching methane. So now why was it not a problem prior? Why is all of a sudden, over the last several decades, this methane an issue? Well, there's a simple answer. Soil biology, liquid carbon pathway. We interrupted the system by degrading our soils. Okay? There are many different species of microbes in the soil. And one of those groups of species are called methanotrophs. Well, what, what do methanotrophs do? They digest methane. What have we done? We have significantly destroyed in the degradation of our soil, methanotrophs and many other species of microbes that cause this liquid carbon pathway cycling to occur normally. That's what took care of the methane and kept the methane from being an issue as a greenhouse gas for so many, many thousands of years. So all we've got to do today, and that's exactly what we're finding in our flux tower data is telling us this, is that if we restore the proper grazing methodologies, regenerative or what we call adaptive grazing, and therefore utilizing that as a tool to restore soil biology in these methanotrophs and all of these soil microorganisms, we now have proper functioning, proper methane digestion, a fully functional liquid carbon pathway, and the methane issue is absolutely no longer an issue. And, and I'm gonna draw the obvious conclusion here, okay? If we truly believe that a grazing animal is an issue here, then not only do we have to get rid of the, the domesticated cattle, and, and that would include dairy cows as well, right? But we would have to go all over the globe and eradicate every wild ruminant. I don't think that any consumer anywhere would advocate that. And I don't think that they believe that wild ruminants are a problem in terms of methane. Well, if they're not a problem, neither are domesticated ruminants, as long as they're grazing regeneratively on our grassland. And just to, to further clarify the point of the question, um, you know, if we ran numbers, and, and I like the fact, you know, because as I've seen time progress, initially when I did these interviews with folks, they say, well, we're not sure what the, uh, you know, what the effect would be, but you've got more data here. What would, can we, can we put it into perspective, like how much could we reduce greenhouse gases? I mean, with net, you know, sequestration of carbon versus how much is it being you know, admitted via methane? Um, what would our numbers look like if, you know, and it, I don't know how long it would take to convert the entire U.S. system to a regenerative style system. Maybe, maybe if, if there were some incentive, you could do it in a decade or two. But what, um, what would that look like from a greenhouse gas standpoint if we know those numbers? Okay, so from, from the numbers that we have so far, um, and, and again, we're, we're still obviously continuously collecting data and learning 
And, and I guess, Sean, here's the other deal is that um, there's still things we don't know. We're still discovering. And those discoveries are continue to be very positive. Uh, so, so with each year, we know more and more about the positive impacts of regenerative agriculture and how rapidly they can, they can impact our, our greenhouse gas issue and all of that, our climate issues and so forth. So here's what we know, is that right now, based on what we know, if we converted just 40 to 50% of our farmland and grassland acres in the U.S. to regenerative agriculture, our U.S. greenhouse gas issue would go away. It would disappear. Okay? It would no longer be an issue. Just 40 to 50% of the arable and grazable acres in the U.S. converted to regenerative agriculture. That's what we know now based on the numbers that, that we have been collecting, the data that we have been collecting. So that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty phenomenal. You know, now, let, me, let me just clarify yep. that. When you say our greenhouse gas issue would go away, does that include the greenhouse gases that are being emitted by industry, uh, transportation, and all that as well, or just the, the agricultural component? Well, it certainly takes care of the agricultural component, but what you have to remember is that all of these other greenhouse gases emitted from industry, automotive, you know, airline, so on and so forth, uh, if we have a more fully functioning system, liquid carbon pathway system and cycle, it, it eradicates or doesn't eradicate, but it helps to control those issues as well. It's not because you can't pick and choose, you know, the source and what's in the atmosphere, right? So again, yes, it would help to greatly reduce the impact of all of these other causes of emissions as well. And let me go back real quick on this methane issue and talk about a couple of things that most consumers may not know. You know, right now, the vast majority of blame for excess methane is being laid on the backs of, of domesticated ruminants, cattle. Uh, but let me remind everyone that methane is emitted from the soil, from many, many other agricultural practices. Um, rice farming, for instance, emits huge amounts of methane. Swamps emit very large amounts of methane. Anaerobic soils, so whether it's a cornfield, a soybean field, a wheat field, if we have very poor water infiltration, very poor soil aggregation, and that soil can act as a sponge, and that water is ponding and pooling on top of the soil, that soil turns anaerobic, and it now becomes a net methane emitter, okay? So even regular farming practices on degraded soils significantly increase methane emissions. Oh, by the way, the production of synthetic nitrogens as fertilizers produces a large amount of emitted methane. So I just wanted to point that out, that there's many, many other sources of methane in the atmosphere that the consumer may not be aware of, and it's not just directly related to, to livestock. It is also directly related to all forms of farming and farming support. 
Let me, um, so what are the barriers, you know, because I look at uh, USDA, I look at, you know, NCBA, I look at uh, our uh, subsidy system. How could we change, you know, legally? Is there any kind of incentivization that could occur that would facilitate this switch that you could see? Doing it from a, a policy standpoint, is always going to be difficult. Um, and one of the primary reasons is it's politics. Okay? Uh, politics is always going to be politics, I guess, is, is the best way to say it. You know, there, people want to protect their turf. There's many different agencies and bureaus and nonprofits and so on and so forth that want a piece of the financial pie when you start having money doled out through federal policies and, and that creates all of these little turf battles and so forth that make it very, very hard for uh, this to occur on a broad scale through national policy. And, and that's just being very honest. We guys, we have had national policy on a lot of this, these types of issues for decades now and we're not getting any better, okay? It's because, again, the statement I made earlier, politics is still politics, okay? Um, the, the very best incentive is the individual farmer financial incentive and quality of life incentive. That's what we found. Uh, and as a matter of fact, many of our regenerative farmers have been able to completely eliminate their reliance on any type of government policy program or subsidy. Many of our regenerative farmers no longer rely on the federal crop insurance program. They don't rely on, uh, you know, federal payments of any type. And so they've been able to basically get off of the government dole, you know, so to speak, and support their own farms, their own ranches through their net revenue generation. So, the biggest incentive is this offers financial freedom. Because again, the vast majority of farmers in the US are heavily reliant on debt, not just capital debt, but also upper annual operating loans. Many farmers don't make enough annually to fund buying their fuel, their fertilizer, their seed, their chemicals, and even their living expenses for their family through the year. So they have to get annual operating loans to fund even the basic expenses that they have. It's incredibly freeing when you can, you can relieve that debt and, and no longer have to rely on that debt and these government programs. So, so that's really the biggest incentive and the biggest draw for most farmers and ranchers is the financial freedom in the improvement and quality of life. Do you see like when you talk to the farmers or hear from the farmers, like what is the kind of the most common response when this kind of thing is pitched to them from like a, like, I want to say like a negative side of things in terms of like their inability to want to start it. Is it just fear of the unknown at that point then? Yep. It is a one word answer. It is fear. Okay. Uh, and that fear comes from multiple perspectives. Uh, first of all, exactly. 
you know, Zach, they're fearful that they may fail if they try this, right? What if I fail? This farm has been in the family for multiple generations. If I fail, I'll be the generation that lost the farm. You know, so that's a very powerful thing with a lot of farmers. Um, they're fearful because family members are telling them that they they may fail, and and they're you know talking to them like, why in the world are you doing this? Why would you do this? Right? Um, they're fearful because their neighbors are are telling them the same thing. Why would you do that? I don't believe it. So they don't want to do anything different from their neighbors. They're fearful because their suppliers, their vendors that are selling them fertilizer, seed, chemicals, and equipment are telling them, don't do this. And even the universities are telling them, don't do this. So they're hearing it from practically everybody out there that's surrounding them. Why would you make this transition? We don't understand. So that creates multiple layers of fear, you know, for these farmers and ranchers. Um, they're also fearful because they're heavily in debt, right? As, as we keep talking about before, they're heavily in debt and they, they don't want to go further in debt. So what is the solution to fear? Education, education. You cannot implement what you do not know. So the very first step for these farmers is they must get a solid education in regenerative principles and practices. Once they do that, that, that helps alleviate a lot of their fear. But in the process of that education, like in our soil health academies that we teach, we not only provide that high-level, intensive, hands-on training, but we help establish a mentoring and supportive network. And that's critical as well. They've got to know that there's others, in spite of their neighbors, their vendors, everybody else telling them, don't do it, don't do it. They've got to know that there's others surrounding them that they can call upon to provide support and encouragement, advice, and so forth. And so we teach them, we train them, we provide ongoing boots on the ground consultation, and we provide a mentoring network that is critical to their success. Once you do that, very, very few go back. You know, it 95% plus, and we've got the we've got the data, we survey them all the time. 95% plus, once they start down this road and make significant transition into regenerative agriculture, never ever go back. As a matter of fact, the opposite occurs. They themselves become huge advocates, very vocal advocates, and go around to those neighbors that were once deriding them and say, hey, you need to do this as well. 
Dr. Williams, just two last topics, if you don't mind, if you, if you kind of answer this. So Tom Massey, yeah. representative Tom Massey out of uh, Kentucky, I believe he's a rancher. He's passed. He's trying to get something passed called the Prime Act, which would kind of uh, remove some of the USDA impediment for ranchers trying to get their product direct to consumer. Would that have a benefit for the, uh, for the, uh, for the regenerative style ranch? Because I know there's so much where you have to feed into the feedlot system and then into the big packer industry because that's the way the system is set up financially, you know, and that's just, you know, that's the system we have. So is, is, is the Prime Act something that would sort of benefit guys doing what you're doing? And then the other question would be um, talk a little bit about, because you talk about soil health and human health. And I want to, I want to make that connection as well, but I want to first talk about the Prime Act and then, then the second part. Okay. Yep. So yes. Uh, and as a matter of fact, that's sort of a natural progression that many of these regenerative farmers and ranchers do make uh, is that rather than selling their beef, their pork, their chicken, their corn, their soybeans, or whatever they're producing through the normal commodity channels, uh, they now they seek out other alternative markets. And, and that is hugely beneficial. And I can tell you that right now, it's extremely beneficial to many of these farmers and ranchers due to the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, you know, many consumers are seeing something that they have never seen in their lifetime now, and that are that is bare grocery store shelves. So our centralized food system is being exposed. There's, there's serious and significant bottlenecks there. It, you know, the centralized food system is sort of like a computer. You know, we had a glitch earlier right? We, we lost our connection for the podcast. So a computer is only good if it works. If it's not working, it's a very expensive paperweight on your desk. And that's all it is. A centralized food system may be grand and glorious when it's working, but when it doesn't work, you end up with what we have today, bare grocery store shelves and a panicking consumer population. So but the opposite has happened with regenerative farmers and ranchers. Regenerative farmers and ranchers over the last month have seen their sales increase anywhere from 400 to more than a thousand percent. So much so that many are now running out of product themselves because they sold in a month what a lot of them would have sold in the entire year. But what is clearly happening here though, Sean, is that the consumer is making a paradigm shift. They are discovering that they can actually go direct to farmers and ranchers and buy food. That there is another way to buy food rather than their, their, their grocery store. Uh, and, and that, oh, by the way, that system is working right now during the pandemic, whereas the centralized food system is not. So I think we're on the cusp, I call it the tables have turned. I think we're on the cusp of a new wave, a new paradigm shift in how food is produced, distributed and marketed here in the US. We're moving back to more local and regionalized food systems because I think almost everybody understands that this type of thing 
can and probably will happen again. And if we have localized and regional food systems, we're far, far better prepared and equipped to get food to people as they need it. So yes, what you're talking about can be hugely beneficial to regenerative farmers and ranchers. We just simply need more of it. Do you see that Prime Act passing or do you think that's something that's gonna get shot down? I mean, I'm just what you're, I don't know if you're much of a politician. Well, <laughs> the one thing that I can say is Again, when you talk about it coming through legislation and all of that, uh, you got to remember what happens in D.C., you know, and it's called lobbying. And so there are those that, with their billions of dollars of lobbying power, will not want that to occur. You know, and so there's going to be significant lobbying pressure. And we've got to understand that and realize that. Um, ultimately, the consumer has the power. And ultimately, their power will rule. Uh, so, um, so I honestly think that's going to be hard-pressed to make it through, okay, without significant changes that will dilute it down tremendously in the final product. Ultimately, I think for this to be highly successful, it's got to be grassroots driven. And I think, you know, guys like y'all are important in that aspect, you know, with your podcast and being able to reach out and touch the consumer and inform them and let them know that there are far better ways that they can access their food. Uh, you know, we can, they can place an order over the internet and we can drop ship good food, nutrient-dense food, food that they know exactly how it was produced direct to their door now, you know. So there, there's better ways to do things. We have that ability now. And I think that regenerative farmers are ultimately poised to be able to meet that coming demand. Yeah, and I, I've been extremely sort of pro-supporting su direct-to-consumer ranching. I think that's I think that's so incredibly important, and I and I do worry about the the, the over-centralization of uh, you know the, a few corporations controlling the entire beef supply. And I think that's something that hopefully we can get away from. Talk to us about uh, regenerative style agriculture and quality of meat, human health. Do we have any data on that? I've not seen a lot of data distinguishing between in actual human intervention trials, looking at grass-fed versus grain and finish. I've seen some study, AM did a couple studies a few years ago, but those studies just aren't out there is what they're actually happening in humans. But what are your thoughts on quality of beef? You know, I know we had Glenn uh, Elzinga talking about uh, the fact that he was fattening up cattle at a rate of like three or four pounds a day, you know, eating a wide variety of different forage. Uh, and, and the cows were, were naturally seeking out some of the higher calorie, uh, you know, forage they had available to them. How does that play a role on the meat quality and then potentially human health? Okay, uh, excellent question, first of all. And there, there's a number of, of responses here. Uh, first of all, uh, Glenn is exactly correct. And I, I know Glenn very well, good friend of mine. Uh, as a matter of fact, he and I 
before everything got shut down a little more than a month ago, we, we spoke together at a conference in Pennsylvania. Uh, so what happens here is that diversity, well, let me back up just a little bit. The soil is the foundation for everything. We, uh, and I keep going back to that and calling the soil the foundation it is. And the microbes in the soil that exist by the trillions and trillions in every single acre of soil are the key. Okay, that microbiome is absolutely key. And the microbiome that exists in the soil is shared by plants, by animals, and by our own human bodies, right? So you know that if you significantly damage the microbiome in your gut and in and on your body, what's going to happen? You're going to get seriously ill, and if you don't replenish it, you're going to die, right? We're dependent on that microbiome. We have 100 trillion plus microbes on and in us every day. And these microbiomes communicate with each other, very, very, very similar and relying on each other. So what happens here is that to build a diverse and highly effective microbiome in the soil, we've got to have tremendous diversity in plant species growing in that soil. And that's exactly what Glenn Elzinga was alluding to. The more plant species that an animal can graze on and eat on every day, the greater the nutrient density they're consuming and therefore the greater the concentration of nutrients in that end product, in that steak, in that hamburger, whatever it may be. Uh, the work of Dr. Fred Provenza, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Fred or not, but uh, Fred has done more than four decades of work looking at this. And that's part of what Glenn alluded to. And, and Fred has an excellent book out now that I'll plug for him called Nourishment, simple title, one word, Nourishment, uh, that is a very good read, very interesting read for anybody, but it, in layman's terms, summarizes four decades worth of research into the benefits of plant species diversity and how that creates significantly higher nutrient density in these protein products that we're consuming. So that's one of the things. It starts with the soil, building the soil microbiome, that builds the nutrient density into the plant. And then of course, that builds it into the animals that are eating those plants and ultimately into us as we consume those proteins or those plants, the fruit and so forth from those plants. Now, relative to that, uh, nutrient density, one of the ways that it's easy for any consumer to be able to gauge nutrient density is the richness and robustness of flavor profile. Whether we're talking about a steak, a hamburger, an apple, a tomato, a blueberry, doesn't matter. That intensity and robustness of the flavor profile is directly indicative of the the amount of nutritive value or nutritive density in that product. Uh, one of the things that we have done is we've done quite a bit of research using a refractometer to measure plant bricks. 
in bricks is a measure of dissolved solids in the sap of a plant or in the, the juice from any kind of fruit or vegetable. And in those dissolved solids are contained proteins, amino acids, lipids, pectins, minerals, and sugars. What we find is that in these regeneratively produced products coming from these more highly biologically active soils, that those products have a significantly higher BRICS level. And anyone can taste that. If you were to take a refractometer of your own and measure BRICS and then taste that plant or that fruit or that vegetable, you would be able to discern between the flavor profile of a 20% BRICS or a 5% BRICS without any problem whatsoever. So that's one of the ways that consumers can know. So foods today, as you probably know, are far blander than they used to be. If you go to the produce section of a grocery store, what do you smell? What do you smell in most produce sections? Dirt. See, now, <laughs> you shrugged, right? And you shrugged for a reason because you're like, well, I don't know. I, I guess I haven't thought about it. If you have truly nutrient-dense produce, fruits and vegetables, and you go to a produce section of a grocery store, you should be, your nose should be assaulted by the aromas, okay? You should immediately smell the lettuces, the tomatoes, the watermelons, the cantaloupes, the cucumbers, and so forth, the peaches. You know, when I was growing up, one of the things that we had on our farm was a peach orchard. And I still remember that when peaches were ripening, you could smell them from a mile or more away, okay? And when you would go pick one of those peaches and you would bite into it, not only was the aroma intoxicating, but the peach was so juicy that the juice would dribble down your chin and dribble down your forearm, right? Well, today you go to a local grocery store, you pick up a peach and you can put it all the way up to your nostrils and not smell a peach aroma. You bite into it, and, and it's like biting into uh, a very old apple. There's no juice coming down, coming out of that peach. And oh, by the way, it's so hard that I could take that peach, and, and Zach, I could throw it at your head and knock you out with it. You know, <laughs> and that's where we're at today, right? So, we, we have significantly diminished nutritive value. So again, as we produce regeneratively and we start building from the soil up, building this microbial population, which is the key to mineral cycling, which is the key to nutrient density in any food product. Now, in terms of our protein, Sean, we have done numerous trials there. there there's a really good trial I think it was from 2016 in the British Journal of Nutrition, okay? Uh, and I'd be happy to share that with you. You can just email me and I, I'll send you that, that, that entire article. But they did uh, some work looking at control groups versus treatment groups, people eating grass-fed beef versus grain-fed beef and found significant differences in their blood titers and so forth over just a four week period. So in a very short period of time. Uh, we've got research going on right now with uh, 
with researchers at uh, Duke University in, in, in the School of Medicine there. We're using, um, you know, technologies in the laboratory to be able to separate out many, many different nutrient uh, profiles that are in protein products. And what I can tell you off of the initial research that has been done so far, uh, comparing grass-fed beef to commodity grain-fed beef, there is more than a 40% biochemical difference, meaning that the grass-fed beef is at least 40% more nutrient dense than the grain-fed beef, the feedlot beef. And then secondly, comparing the grass-fed beef to one of the, the plant-based alternatives, okay? One of those burgers. So we compare grass-fed beef hamburger to a plant-based alternative hamburger, and we found an 87% difference, meaning that the grass-fed hamburger was 87% more nutrient dense than the plant-based alternative burger. That's staggering, guys, in terms of that nutritive value difference. Uh, and we, we're continuing to collect this data. And we're, we've collected fatty acid profile data for more than 20 years now. I have reams of that data in my files. And what we're finding is that there is a significant difference in the fatty acid profiles. Uh, of pastured proteins versus grain-finished proteins, always in favor of the pastured proteins, significantly more omega-3s, significantly more polyunsaturated fatty acids, significantly more CLAs or conjugated linoleic acid. And one more thing that I'll share with you. I don't know if you've heard of DDGs or not, dried distiller's grains. Uh, commonly called DDGs in the livestock industry. DDGs are a byproduct of taking corn and producing ethanol from that corn. Over the past two decades, because of the number of ethanol plants that now exist in the U.S., DDGs have become much more common as a feed supplement for beef cattle, dairy cattle, chickens, pigs, and so forth. And what we have found in fatty acid analysis is that animals fed higher levels of DDGs in their finishing diets, and that's exactly what's occurring in a lot of feedlots and in many other livestock systems now. Their omega-6 to 3 ratio can be as high as 55 to 1. Now wrap your head around that, 55 to one. The AMA and the AHA, American Heart Association, says that our omega-6 to three ratio in our diets should be four to one or less. A lot of these commercially produced protein products are running because of the DDG diets, hugely higher omega-6 to three ratios, which is very, very detrimental to our health.
Well, that's some great information. I want to just one last thing, because uh, I know we've been keeping you for a long time. Just as you've been seeing this over the last, you know, several decades, what is the rate of growth of regenerative agriculture now? Are we seeing significant growth rates? Are we seeing accelerated growth rates? Or is it still kind of a slow, steady thing? What can we expect to see in five to 10 years? Yeah, I, I can directly address, address that. Um, 10 years ago, Sean, uh, if we were doing a workshop or a conference on regenerative agriculture, and that was the core focus, you would have done well to attract 50 to 100 people. Okay, And you might have been able to have two, three, four of those a year in different parts of the country. Today, uh, my partners and I, corp uh, corporately, we spoke more than 400 times last year at more than 400 events to more than 93,000 people directly in front of more than 93,000 people face-to-face. -face. Um, and via video and all of that to several million, you know, with views and so forth. So, so what I can say very definitively is that compared to 10 years ago and even five years ago, this is definitely snowballing and the demand for information and knowledge about regenerative agriculture has become overwhelming. Uh, we have expanded our, our, the number of our consultants in our company, you know, more than 300% over the last two years uh, because of that demand just to try to meet it. Uh, and our, our, we could speak, my partners and I, other than right now, because everything is postponed or canceled. <laughs> but, uh, but normally, we could speak somewhere almost every day of the year you know, on regenerative agriculture in front of audiences that number anywhere from several hundred to several thousand. Uh, so the demand has grown exponentially and is continuing to grow. So no doubt that this has taken hold and that this is going to continue to grow. Now, let's put it in perspective at this point in time, okay? When you look at total numbers of farms and ranches out there, regenerative operations are still below 5%. So we've got a lot of growing to do. So that means that it's going to take a lot more of us a lot more Gay Browns, a lot more Glenn Elzingas, a lot more Joel Salatons, a lot more Will Harris's and Ray Archuleta's and so on and so forth. It's going to take a lot more of us to promote, to advocate, to teach, to train. Uh, and it's going to take a lot more of y'all. Okay? Uh, you, again, as I said earlier, perform a vital role in all of this because the consumer is also a huge driver of this. The more consumers we get demanding that their food products be produced regeneratively and are more nutrient dense than the more farmers we're going to have that become interested and want to transition. So you play as much of a role in this as we do just from a different perspective and a different audience. Yeah, we're happy to, uh, to, to, to play that role. I think, it's, I think it's wonderful what you guys are doing and, you know, anything that 
we can do as consumers to help, I think makes sense. You know, I, I, when I look at the, the potential scenarios for food production that are out there, some of them don't look particularly appealing to me, particularly with this, you know, push to everything's, you know, this plant-based synthetic, uh, you know, food grown in a lab type of stuff, which I think is troubling at, at, at the very least. And certainly uh, I think the, the impact of regenerative agriculture from an environmental standpoint, far, far exceeds, you know, what they could do in a lab, you know, as far as, you know, actually mitigating and improving our, our, our environment rather than just uh, not harming it as much, which I think is, uh, uh, you know, while it's a noble idea, it, it falls short in, in its execution. I don't think it lives up, lives up to its promise for us, what you guys are doing demonstrably already on the ground is doing that, which I think is wonderful. But I thank you for coming on and uh, being more, uh, sort of definitive about what's possible because and, and, and using this, the data is because I've heard a lot of speculation. We don't know and we don't have the data, but it sounds like the data is coming in and it continues to point us in this direction, which I think is uh, important, important information. Absolutely. Yeah, Dr. Williams, it was great to have you on and share, share all your, your info with us. I'm sure our listeners are going to love this one, but uh, if you want to quick, let us know where, where we can find you, social media, website, and things like that, then our listeners can go check it out and I can put it in the show notes. Absolutely. Uh, for anyone that wants to know more about us, uh, they can come to, uh, there, there's really three different websites uh, that they can come to, uh, understandingag.com. Uh, we have a lot of resource information there. They can contact us directly through that website on the contact page. They can go, if they want to learn more about educational aspects of regenerative agriculture, they can go to soilhealthacademy.org. And if they want to learn more about the protein side of this, they can go to Joyce, J-O-Y-C-E, JoyceFarms.com and learn more about what is happening on the protein side. So, so any one of those three websites, uh, they can contact us through and we have numerous resources out there, educational materials, blogs, articles, videos, and we're constantly adding to that. So as we get, Sean, the data that we talked about and all of that, as we get more and more of that in, you know, that, that's going to be plugged into these resource websites as well. Alan, do you, and I know you've got, is it Joyce Farms? Um, do you guys personally sell direct to consumer any of your, any of your product that you have? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. So anybody can just go to our website and place an order and have it ship directly to their door. Uh, and, uh, you know, they can be assured that they're getting a, a truly regeneratively produced product. Uh, and we, we have multiple proteins, you know, available there as well. Yes. And that's J-O-I-C-E. J-O-Y. J-O-Y-C-E. Farm.com or? Farms, plural. Yeah. Joycefarms.com. Yep. Perfect. Perfect. Zach, can we put, we'll put that in our notes. So Absolutely. Yeah. That. We'll, we'll put all those links in the show notes folks. So you can head on over and check them out if you're interested. Thank you again, Alan. It's been a pleasure and it's a learning experience and I appreciate the work you're doing. And again, I just hope that, uh, you know, we can continue to keep this, uh, this conversation in the public. So more people uh, become educated on this because I think it's so important. Thank you. Well, thank you all as well. Truly appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, take care. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing 
and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.